an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening. And I'm happy to see each and all. I feel that I have been away from Santa Cruz Zen Center for a long time, both in our, during June anyway, <laughs> both in Arcata as usual, and also very recently um, out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, for our dear friends Nanette and Chuck, who are also Santa Cruz Zen Center priests. People have been asking me about that trip, so I thought I would share a little bit about it. And my, you know, there was uh, 22 hours of road time between here and there in one direction. So I had plenty of time for reflection on my way home. So I thought I would share some about the event and my reflections for you. Um, Upaya Zen Center is, Upaya itself, the word means skillful means or tools. And this in and of itself is a very helpful reminder that skillful means something related to responding to the conditions. <laughs> because how would we know if it was skillful or not until we met the conditions with it, right? So upaya, the word upaya itself is a helpful reminder to bring present moment awareness to every activity. And you may know that Joan Halifax, there she's known as Roshi Joan Halifax, um, is the abbess and lead teacher and she is in the lineage of Bernie Glassman, which is the Zen Peacemaker Order. And that has its roots in the Soto lineage of Maizumi. So it's quite parallel to Suzuki and not exactly the same. I thought you would like to know, though, that if you were to go to Upaya Zen Center, you would feel right at home because the forms of practice, the general tone and feeling is very similar to us. And at the same time, I will say that there are some differences. The language of the chants is intriguing. You know, the influence of Kaz Tanahashi with Roshi Joan in the translations that are used. Uh, it's intriguing to listen to the way um, the words have subtle and nuanced differences, skillfully done, I believe, and helpful for study. Uh, there, the emphasis is on socially engaged Buddhism, and this influences, I believe it influences everything they do, including the forms of practice. For me, it was a um, 
it was strenuous. It was very strenuous to get there and be there and immerse in a uh, different practice environment, similar enough that I didn't feel awkward, but different enough that I definitely missed a beat a few times like, <laughs> um, and had to look at our friends closely to be able to know, is this the right place to bow? Is this the right place to turn and leave? Is this the right place for hands this way or is it hands this way? So definitely um, a little bit more on um, heightened awareness, not exactly alert, <laughs> but heightened awareness to, oh, I want to be able to fit in well with this community seamlessly. So it would seem that, uh, you know, that I was going there to transmit the permission to teach to both Nanette and Chuck. Uh, they are now wearing brown robes in our lineage. So they are transmitted in the San Francisco Zen Center lineage. And I consciously chose to do this in their location. So what my experience of this is that it is a confluence of the Maizumi and Glassman stream along with the Suzuki and Catherine stream, a confluence of these two rivers. Kathy came along with me and acted as the preceptor for one of the main ceremonies, uh, giving them permission now to turn around and offer the precepts to their own students. I found myself thinking quite often of Catherine in preparation for the ceremony and enactment of this ceremony. It's a seven day long ceremony that included um, many details, more details than my little mind could hold. So I, w I had it all in a binder and it made me appreciate Catherine even more and Maya, who came down to help Catherine with my own transmission ceremony. So this confluence of ways, the coming together or the, I had to look it up in the dictionary to make sure I was choosing the right word. Confluence meaning the coming together or flowing together, meeting of two or more streams, literally water, or anything that is gathering at one point, meeting or gathering at one point. So it could have been quite uh, uncomfortable to be, I could have resisted it, for example, to say, oh no, those forms are not the way we do our forms. <laughs> You've got it all wrong. I could have done that, but I didn't. <laughs> or I could have entered into it kind of vaguely like not knowing what to expect and to kind of stay in that vague zone wondering. But instead I took it as a uh, prompt really to heighten my awareness and really literally fold myself into the community to be immersed completely. This is I believe consistent with socially engaged Buddhism. Here's how I see that. You know, Maybe two, three weeks ago, I offered you a teaching from Suzuki Roshi. That is uh, the way in which our seated meditation and our ritual practice 
is the same as holding the precepts carefully. So you might remember that Suzuki said this, in our observation of rituals, the point is to be free from selfish ideas. The practice of rituals is the practice of selflessness. We do it to forget ourselves and become one. So as I was experiencing the forms of practice at Upaya, I had a heightened awareness, a consciousness of becoming one with this group of people and their movements um, consciously in sync, uh, waiting until everyone was standing to bow together, for example, very beautifully and gracefully done. You all would recognize this feeling because we do it too. You would recognize the sound of the bells and the roll down with one hit and then the roll down with two hits and then the roll down with three hits. These are the same. This is the Soto lineage that we carry together. And there are a few differences in the language and in the tone. They use a translation of merging of difference and unity that is titled The Identity of Relative and Absolute. I think we can see how those are parallel translations of the actual original. But I want to give you a, an experience of what it sounds like in their temple. The mind of the great sage of India is intimately conveyed west and east. Among human beings are wise ones and fools in the way there is no teacher of north and south. So a little bit musical, you know, and a little bit later in the same uh, teaching. Fire is hot, water, sorry. Fire is hot, nope. Water is wet, wind moves and the earth is dense. I inform, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, the sweet and sour, each independent of the other, like leaves that come from the same root. So, a little musical. We recognize it as familiar and just enough difference to pique our awareness or intrigue us a bit. The uh, chants that they use at mealtime, uh, the four bodhisattva vows, which we also use, are slightly different in translation, but uh, very, very similar to what we have. So we have this uh, experience of uh, connecting to another sangha. as part of our practice now. We are connected there as part of our practice now. Recently here I have uh, taught about the four methods of guidance, the um, four ways bodhisattvas embrace living beings. And I found myself uh, reflecting upon these while I was there quite a lot. So for example, um, as you might remember, Dogen taught this four methods of guidance to the lay-based community. So it was very clear and very ap applicable to our just normal human interactions. 
the first of the four being generosity, which Dogen um, defines as non-greed. And in my reflection there, I experienced this as, well, how exactly is non-greed going to show up right now? I consciously chose to turn toward these four methods of guidance. So, you know, it's kind of like internally, my inner speech was something like, this doesn't have to be my way. This doesn't have to be the way I pictured it. I want to do what the Upaya community is doing. This is the experience of non-greed. And in the experience of kind speech, the second of the four, I didn't, I didn't, I consciously didn't say, we will do this. I consciously spoke to say, well, here's how I see our way could slip in easily with the Upaya way. How does that work for you? And listen carefully, you know. So this is an example of uh, using kind speech, returning to these four methods as a way of navigating our way in this confluence. And so on with the other two of the four methods beneficial action, how can I be most helpful here, and identity action, what is it that will uh, realize or make very evident our non-separation? So I definitely had habits of mind that would take me away from the four methods of guidance. <laughs> and uh, I would say that um, the influence of Catherine and our Sangha encouraged me to keep returning to these four methods as a way of not going astray. So, for example, why would I let my habits of mind keep me from the experience that I was actually having there? <laughs> we have, um, I might define, for example, suffering as wanting something else. I have often thought of suffering that way. Uh, and I would say that the training of our practice is to develop a sane and stable relationship to our actual experience rather than to our imagined experience. So continually asking myself the question, how is what I'm expecting to see here influencing what I can actually see. You know, sometimes the expectation itself gets in the way of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Or another way to say that is, how do my beliefs about myself or my beliefs about others or my beliefs about the way things need to be impact my actual experience? Basically, I think that there is often a tension between what we think is and what actually is. A gap between a concept and present moment awareness. Um, and I would say that our efforts and practice for all of us are aimed at narrowing that gap. And therefore, uh, by arousing this present moment non-judgmental awareness, 
we are actually um, hmm, words are escaping me by arousing this we are actually calling forth the antidote to our suffering the struggles that we have in life for example or the tension between what we think is and what actually is shutting down pushing away feeling overwhelmed anything like that um, the present moment awareness is actually the antidote to that particular struggle. We may spend a lot of time wishing that we were somewhere else or someone else or having a different experience. We might find ourselves wanting, even while we're on the cushion or on our chairs, wanting or not wanting or rejecting or grasping even while we're in the midst of following our breath. So my reflections upon all of this, upon driving home, you know, there are so many what we would call afflictive emotions that contribute to suffering. And I believe that they have their roots in what I would call incomplete view. You know, we have in the... Eightfold path, right view, right thought, right speech, and so on. You've heard them many times. That right view is not, as you've heard me say before, contrasted with wrong view. I would contrast it with incomplete view. So the antidote to an incomplete view is to broaden the view and include a wider perceptual field, uh, an accurate view. Or we could say a view that is in accord with the way things are. Uh, not simply in accord with the way I imagined they might be. Mm. Incomplete view wants to deny the truth of impermanence. And incomplete view wants to deny the truth of interconnectedness. You know, we, have, we have a tendency to say, I mean mine. This is... Greed. <laughs> That's an example of greed or creating separation. No. So, holding to a fixed view is a way of saying, I'm better or more informed or more thoughtful or more, more something than you. So, But if we have the courage to recognize that somebody else's view, somebody else's way is equally valid, here we're now recognizing interconnectedness. And this was my experience with recognizing the beauty of practice at Upaya Zen Center. We have in our practice called, uh, a word that's kleshas, that is sometimes translated as uh, uh, poisons or unwholesome roots. And they, these kleshas include states of mind, mostly anxiety, fear, anger and so on. Uh, um, and we can think of them as the, the activities of the mind and heart that would like to pull us away from wisdom. We know that we've heard often spoken of the three poisons, greed, hate, and delusion. 
but the kleshas actually include um, conceit. We we could call that self-centeredness or the assumption of privilege, for example. Uh, the kleshas include incomplete view. The kleshas include um, restlessness or shamelessness or recklessness. But we have the antidotes to every single one of these uh, unwholesome roots. If we think of them as poisons, we in the in the medical world we have an antidote to the poison. So we actually have all of these antidotes right at our fingertips. We say them on a daily basis. We do them with our bodies. For example, uh, the klesha of incomplete view, we say, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Right? Oh. The Dharma gates are boundless. We could say reality is boundless. And we're making a promise to enter every one of those gates. We have the antidote, for example, to recklessness. <laughs> we call it mindfulness. Pay attention to this moment. What are my hands doing? What is my spine doing? Uh, is my chin in line with the floor? Is my nose in line with the navel? This is mindful attention to the posture. Uh, and we carry this mindful present moment awareness forward into every activity. This is the antidote to recklessness. We have the antidote to conceit. You know, conceit would be, no, it has to be my way. <laughs> but we also have the teaching right out of the Metta Sutta. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. So the value of memorizing these chants, the value of recognizing the way in which our training trains us for uh, noting the antidote quality. This is what we are aiming for in practice. So the value of memorizing is that this is my experience. Right at the moment that I would turn toward the habitual, and I would say that would be um, not necessarily poisonous, but certainly not wholesome. Right at that moment, something in me gives me the message, oh no, right, be strenuous, upright, and sincere without pride. So the value of having memorized them, the probably the unconscious sends us the message as the antidote. And then our task is to pay attention to what our uh, deeper consciousness has sent us. <laughs> one of the kleshas, one of the unwholesome roots could be laziness. And in my experience, there is more than one kind of laziness. It's a way of being out of balance, <clears throat> laziness. And I would say that getting kind of uh, 
hyper about stuff is another way of being out of balance. What we need to look for is not one extreme, not the other extreme, but as we have been taught, something in the middle. But there are anyway, there are many kinds of laziness. There is one kind of laziness that is um, just trying to stay comfortable in my comfort zone. That's not to say that there are times when I do, in fact, need to be comforted. That's a different kind of wanting to be comforted and comfortable. There, the one kind of laziness is uh, wanting to stay in my comfort zone so that I don't have to stretch or be uh, called upon to do anything other than what is already easy for me. <laughs> That's a kind of laziness. And there is a different kind of laziness that is uh, what I would say is discouragement or a loss of heart. Literally, discouragement uh, from the root word core of heart. Discouragement. A feeling of kind of giving up. This is a kind of laziness because what I have done by engaging that kind of laziness is narrowed my view to small concerns rather than to keep the view quite wide. I could have fallen into any one of these unwholesome ways, kleshas, but supported and encouraged by the community, and I will say uh, welcomed generously by Roshi Joan, uh, also my love and care for Nanette and for Chuck. I continually made the choice, I made the effort to return to this present moment. What is it exactly that this set of conditions calls for? And what, it, what is it exactly that is the most appropriate response? So these four methods of guidance and the four ways bodhisattvas embrace living beings uh, helped me to stay stable and clear during this strenuous time of being away. I hope this gives you a kind of an idea of where I have been and what I have been doing. And after our closing vows and announcements, I'm happy to stick around and have more conversation if you get curious about what is this that Nanette and Chuck just experienced. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. And for your benefit, maybe I'll offer you at this moment the Upaya way of doing the four vows. It will feel familiar and please let yourself be intrigued. Creations are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless, I vow to perceive it. The awakened way is unsurpassable, 
I vow to embody it. <laughs>